I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, for the reading of God's holy word. Let us first of all ask the Lord whose spirit breathed out this word infallibly and inerrantly and preserved it for us in Holy Scripture now to breathe upon us afresh that we might have spiritual wisdom and insight to receive his word by his grace and to live according to it. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and the hope of glory. We give you thanks, O God, that by your sovereign grace you save us from our sins and from ourselves by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in Jesus' name and for his sake and for the sake of his kingdom throughout all the earth, we ask you now to bless the reading and hearing of your holy word. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might behold the wonders of your grace in Jesus. Open our minds and renew our minds with your truth. And grant to us that grace by which we may with one heart and one voice praise your name forever through Jesus Christ our only Savior and Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The Word of God, it is written. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And now to him who is able to do far more exceedingly abundantly than all that we could ever ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus in all ages forever and ever. Amen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those words breathed out by God, written by the Apostle Paul, preserved for us in Holy Scripture, speak to us today about the foundation for the Christian life, the foundation for the life of the church, and the foundation for the church's ministry and mission in the world. That foundation is this, the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where we're beginning today. On the first Lord's Day in this new sanctuary, As we begin a new era in the life of this congregation because there's no other place to begin. No other sure foundation for our life together as a congregation than in the preaching of the word of the cross, Christ and Him crucified. But right away we must acknowledge, just as the Apostle Paul did in verse 18, that Not everyone will be receptive to the word of the cross. Some will reject it. The Apostle Paul understood that, but he did not let that keep him from preaching Christ crucified. He knew what he had been called to do. He knew where the power of God for the salvation of sinners was to be found. And he knew, as verse 25 says, That the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, the foolishness of the cross reveals a wisdom that the human mind could never conceive. The weakness of the cross reveals a power over and above all human power. Wisdom and power. Those are the two important themes in this passage. And perhaps you notice that the words wisdom and power occur over and over again in this passage. That's part of Paul's strategy in this passage. He's playing with these concepts of wisdom and power in order to show the Corinthians and us today where true wisdom and real power are found. What true wisdom really is and what real power really does. Wisdom and power. As in our day, so also in the ancient world. Wisdom and power were means to human greatness, superiority glory. Nobody ever gets ahead in this world by being foolish and weak, right? The human quest is either to master the universe with wisdom or master the world with power. Either way, it's because we think that our salvation lies in human wisdom, and in human power. Well, wisdom and power were important commodities in ancient Corinth. Think, for example, of the importance of philosophy in ancient Greece. In Greek culture, nobility, superiority, the fulfilled human life, 
your best life now. Uh, success was attained by the philosophers. For the Greeks, salvation was found in wisdom. But what about the Roman culture? The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was all about, and first century Corinth was part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was all about power, the power of the sword. The glory that was Rome was the glory of dominating power. It was the power that made Caesar the so-called savior of the world. And it was, of course, the power of Rome's sword that held the Jewish people in subjugation in their own land in Palestine in the first century and throughout the empire. It was the power of Rome's sword that taxed and controlled the Jews who were dispersed throughout the empire, for example, in Corinth. The Jews in their occupied homeland and the Jews dispersed throughout the empire considered themselves to be living in exile, as it were, deprived of their national rights and liberties under the oppressive power of an alien, abominable foe. And so the Jews of the first century believed that power, power to overthrow Rome, was critical to their survival, their salvation. And it was in this context that the Apostle Paul preached the word of the cross. And as he tells us in verse 18... It was regarded as a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Well, then why was this the case? He, well, he says in verse 22 that Jews, he's referring to first century Jews of the Roman Empire, Jews demi- demand signs, that is, signs of power, demonstrable evidence that proves the power to accomplish a goal, which in this case was liberation from Rome. But in response to this demand for signs of power, what does Paul offer them? The word of the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified. A sign of power? The cross is a sign of weakness. Defeat. Utter humiliation. Jews... Demand signs, and Paul preaches Christ and him crucified. That's an important turn of phrase there in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, which Paul says is a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, you know what a stumbling block is. It's, it's, you get tripped up by it. You can't, you can't get over it. You can't get around it. You don't see it coming. It knocks you off balance, throws you for a loop because you didn't, you didn't see it coming. And in this sense, it's, the word can also be translated a scandal, a scandalon. Because it's just, not, it's just something that's not supposed to be. That's exactly what the cross of Christ was for most of those first century Jews in Paul's day. It was a stumbling block and a scandal. It's an un- unheard of. It just can't be because Christ crucified Christ crucified made no sense. 
It was a contradiction in terms. It was an oxymoron. The Jews of the first century could not conceive of a Christ Messiah who would come into the world and be executed in the most horrible and humiliating, degrading way by the pagan power which he had supposedly come to conquer. It cannot be. That's not the Messiah they were looking for. They wanted a sign of power. Not a sign of weakness and defeat and death. On the other hand, in first century Corinth, Greeks seek wisdom. The unbelieving Greeks, the Gentiles, rejected the gospel of Christ crucified because the very idea of God becoming human, God taking on human flesh and blood, coming into this world, oh, just utterly abhorrent to them. It was the, the ultimate in irrational folly. Who would have ever heard of such a thing? The Greek philosophers set their minds on the ideal world in the purely spiritual realm, far removed from the nasty realities of this material creation. Oh, no. In, in Greek philosophy, salvation is a matter of the spirit being released from this, this bodily shell, this prison of mortal flesh, into the ethereal, immaterial realm where it can fly unencumbered in heavenly bliss. <laughs> you may think that that's a description of Christian salvation, but let me uh, assure you, it is not. That's a pagan notion far removed from the fullness of our redemption in the resurrection of the body to life everlasting. But the point here, now we'll come back to verse 22, the point is folly to the Gentiles. The point here is that Greek philosophy never, ever would have entertained the idea that God would become man, that God, the invisible and eternal spirit, would unite himself with human flesh and blood, voluntarily humble himself to participate in the mundane realities of physical life on earth. <laughs> even to the point of sharing in the miseries of human existence in this far less than ideal world. To the point even of death, death on a cross, never, never. No way, no deity in Greek philosophy would ever, ever do anything like that. Folly. But in this context of both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, and the point there, it covers the whole gamut of the human race. It covers us. In this culture of human wisdom and human power, the Apostle Paul dared to declare something which seems to be nothing but folly and weakness. The word of the cross, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's the thing, Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't shy away from the criticisms and rejection of the unbelievers. In fact, he took their assessment of the gospel, foolishness, weakness, and he turned those words around and fired them right back, preaching the word of the cross, the word of foolishness and weakness, in order to reveal that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what is the foolishness of God which is wiser than men? It is the foolishness of Christ and Him crucified. No human wisdom, no human wisdom would ever conceive of victory by means of defeat. No human wisdom would ever conceive of glory by means of humiliation. No human wisdom would ever conceive of salvation by means of a horrible condemnation. That would be foolishness. Oh yes, that would be the foolishness of God, which is wiser than men. For what human wisdom could ever conceive or construct a means, a way to reconcile, here we go, what human wisdom could ever construct a way to reconcile the righteousness of the Holy Creator with the sinfulness of man. That's the basic problem for us humans. That's my problem and it's your problem. How are we going to reconcile ourselves to the Holy One? With all our sins and shortfallings, all our rebellion against God in a disobedience to His law, in defiance of His absolute right to judge us according to His standard of perfection, by what wisdom can we reconcile the holiness of the righteous Creator with our sinfulness? What argument would you make? How do you persuade the righteous judge? Well, we say he is a God of love. Yes, he is. He is a God of perfect love. And because he is a God of perfect love, he is a God of perfect goodness. And because he is a God of perfect goodness, he always does that which is perfectly right. Which means that he is a God which makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between right and wrong. And he's still a God of love. So if he's perfectly good and holy as the Bible says he is, if he is perfectly righteous and acts in accordance with his righteousness, in accordance with his word, and he always does what is right, he must be a God of perfect justice. Justice against sin. Can his justice be any less perfect than his love? Can, can one outweigh the other? Or can his justice and his love be in opposition to one another so that in his own eternal mind he is torn this way and that? Never. It cannot be. So how do we resolve this problem with human wisdom? Where is the wise man who can reconcile the justice of God against sin with the love of God for sinners? 
There is no human wisdom that can reconcile that conflict, and there is no other religion in the world that has an answer to this problem. No real answer. There's only one answer. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. On the cross of Christ, the wrath and justice of God against sin and the love of God for sinners came together in perfectly united harmony. The foolishness of God revealed in the folly of Christ crucified is the fact that the, it is the wisdom of God by which God's justice against sin and God's love for sinners are reconciled in perfect harmony, in perfect keeping with the eternal character of God. The foolishness of God is that He did become one of us for us. The foolishness of God is that He did, as a real man of flesh and blood, live for us as our representative in our stead, the life that we were created and intended to live, a life of sinless, happy, perfect obedience, a life of righteousness to the glory of God. That's the life that Jesus lived, and as our sinless, spotless, righteous representative in our stead, as our substitute, He then freely offered up Himself on the cross to suffer the condemnation due to us for our sins. He took upon Himself our sins so that we might be clothed in His righteousness. On the cross, Jesus Christ took our sins upon Himself. He suffered that justice of God against our sins. Fully satisfied that justice of God against our sins so that we, through faith in Him, might receive the free mercy of God poured out upon us sinners. And God's holy character is maintained as He pours out His love upon us. And so in the foolishness of God, through the folly of the cross, the satisfaction of God's justice against sin, and the riches of God's mercy were freely offered to helpless and hopeless sinners. The foolishness of God is the display and the proof of His love. For as Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And thus, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, the weakness of God is stronger than men. How so? Look at Jesus dying on the cross. The cross is the weakness of defeat and death. How could the power of God be revealed in the death of a crucified Christ? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the infinite, invisible, immortal, eternal, uncreated creator, the all-powerful ruler of heaven and earth, has in the man, Jesus Christ, plunged himself into our mortality. And he has experienced human death in the depths of his own eternal 
being, God has swallowed up death and spit it out. He's turned it upside down and inside out. He's been there, done that, undone it forever through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. On the cross of Christ, in the death of Christ, death died. Christ conquered death by His death in the death of Christ. On the cross of Christ, the power of death was defeated by the weakness of God. Right? The most powerful power on earth, death, who's got the power to overcome it? Not one of us. The most powerful power in the universe, death, has been conquered by Jesus Christ in His death. And so, do you see, it is in union with Christ. This is the reason that it is Christ alone by whom we are saved. It is in union with Christ in His death on the cross that we, by faith, die with Him so that we might be raised with Him and share His victory over death. And so the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I want to drive this home in a particular way this morning. It was this very passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, and it was the core and essence of this sermon, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. It was this very text, it was this very sermon, which I preached on November the 7th, 2010. The first Sunday that I began this tenure of my ministry in the Covenant pulpit almost eight years ago. None of us then, most now gone to glory, none of us then had any idea of where we would be today. So let us take note and understand today that from this day forward there is no foundation for this congregation and there is no salvation for this congregation apart from the foundation and the salvation of Christ and Him crucified, the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. Without Christ we can do nothing. As we begin this new era in the life of this congregation, in this new sanctuary, let us praise the Lord by saying in the words of Martin Luther, the Word did it all. The Word did it all. Say it. The Word did it all. And that Word is the Word of the cross Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let us consecrate ourselves today, anew, body and soul, to be a congregation of 
biblical faith centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. In submission to His Word written in Scripture, with a passion to see His name proclaimed as Savior and Lord in our lives, in our community, and around the world, Christ, the power of God, for the salvation of all who believe. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of our Son, Jesus Christ, and for your power to call light out of darkness, life out of death, to renew our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. Pour out your blessing upon us, we pray, that we may truly live on earth as citizens of heaven, that all the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world as we say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.